Hello and welcome to our next episode of the DevOps Speak Easy podcast. Um, if I remember correctly, that's episode number eight. And uh, my name is Barok Sadogurski. I'm the Chief Sticker Officer, uh, Jeff Rog, also Head of uh, DevOps Advocacy. Uh, today in my virtual studio with me, my co-host, uh, Kat Cosgrove, Developer Advocate in Jeff Rog. And a dear, dear guest that I actually still wait to meet face to face, but that's the closest that we have so far, uh, Sam Boyer. Hello, hello. Hey, Sam. Um, and I will just rename your, that will be, here we go. You oh, so I can be a human and not just a handle. Yeah, that's fair. Yes. <laughs> uh, Sam Boyer, here we go. All right, perfect. All right. Um, so yeah, Sam, welcome to the uh, DevOps Speak Easy podcast. Thank you. Uh, and um, I think it's kind of tradition now to start with the first uh, question. Who is Sam Boyer? Sam Boyer. Sam Boyer is currently um, a man desperately trying to grow a mustache, but it's really sad. Like I, I, I look like a teenager and I'm doing that cooped up in my house with my <laughs> two kids while fun employed um, and uh, uh, juggling all the things as we are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I've also done a few things in the software. Yeah. So here you world. go. You are known not for your mustache, but not so much or lack thereof, but, yes. but, for um, so the, the main thing that people know me for is four years ago, I wrote um, uh, a, uh, a blog post called So You Want to Write It, So You Want to Write a Package Manager, which was full of sarcasm and thoughts and ideas. And it ended up um, uh, uh, leading to, I mean, it's, package management has been kind of the, the main thing that I've been focused on essentially since I wrote that um, piece. is the beginning of 2016. It's kind of crazy now that it's been like more than four years. But um, uh, so from there, uh, later that year, we ended up, uh, we go community members ended up forming, um, forming a committee, which resulted in the uh, uh, DEP tool, the uh, uh, official experiment was the terminology that we ended up settling on. Um, and uh, uh, we worked on that through 2017. And then uh, in 2018, it, uh, gave way to um, the uh, Vigo system, which is now modules and is in the GoTool chain proper. Yep. And actually just yep. this morning, I merged, I merged a pull request against DEP to update the readme <laughs> of DEP, which has been sitting there for like two years to say uh, uh, that uh, modules is the, the official system, so. And so we are actually here on the very historic day when you officially are retired, go there. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could put it that way. I mean, realistically, like I have been, I, I have been more or less a hermit for the last uh, year and a half, something like that. I mean, um, uh, yeah, since last, since like summer 2018, I've, I've more or less been withdrawn. My son was born, my second kid was born um, in October. And, you know, if you're a parent, you know, that's, slightly time consuming. Um, uh, so between that and then all of the uh, intenseness of working at Stripe, it just sort of, it was, it, it, it felt like the thing to do. Uh, I left Stripe at the beginning of February, which was just absolutely spectacular timing. I can't think of a better time to, you should, everybody should do their jobs right now. That's totally a thing that you should do with 20 million unemployed people in the United States and who knows, you know, whatever other economic havoc being wrecked, wrought around the world. So, Fun employed, yeah. 
uh, <laughs> yeah. This is so, yeah, a little bit of a roller coaster, man. A little bit what? A little bit of a roller coaster there. I, you know, like life is an adventure, and and uh, embrace it or something, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I, uh, who could possibly have predicted? I mean, beginning of February, maybe I should have been like more tuned into it. I I can say that we did start we did start stocking up by end February. I can go back and like check our grocery budget bill for that, and it was we spent a lot on groceries in in February. But oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been very interesting. Um, oh, I, I gotta ask what yep. on earth possess you to undertake writing a package manager, like building a CMS is kind of like a weird rite of passage that web developers go through. Like everyone I worked in Drupal eventually thinks I will yeah. build a CMS. There you go. I worked in Drupal for like seven years and I thought that I would do that at some point while I did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody does. So is, is trying to build a package manager, just like the natural progression from the, I'm going to build a CMS. I mean, in, in the scale of horrible ideas. <laughs> it's, it is, it is fraught territory. That's for sure. So actually, um, uh, when you, when you ask it that way, I, for a while, I tried to learn, uh, for a while, I like learn new programming languages by writing graph libraries in them. Um, that was like the thing sure. that I did like, like you do, um, which, I feel like it's actually been, because I'm just, I love graphs, which is actually part of kind of how I ended up in package management. But um, I also learned why you shouldn't write graph libraries, like almost ever, um, because I did it a bunch of times. And there's, that's its whole own thing. Uh, I think the the actual legitimate, honest, best answer to um, uh, to why I would undertake writing a package manager is because they are, I, I genuinely believe uh, the things that I've said at various points that like package managers are the tools that we use to collaborate with each other. So if you care sure. about open source, if you care about communities, they are like on the one hand, the connective tissue sort of without which everything is just super painful, but also in many ways they are the tools where the rules that they have and the commands that they provide and often even subtle things about them end up being determinative of like the social structures that make up our open source communities. And I care about those a great deal. Um, I, I care very much about trying to build inclusive, non-harmful, uh, collaborative spaces for people, especially ones where nobody's getting paid and everybody's, you know, <laughs> getting something unstructured out of it, right? Like, uh, so this has been kind of a theme throughout my career uh, and even kind of pre-career, uh, just, being enmeshed in in some kind of community or another and like seeing seeing collaboration not work well and chafe at the edges and and uh, gravitating towards those kind of problems. That's noble. <laughs> Sounds like a huge pain in the ass though. It kind yeah, of is. yeah, let's let's talk about that. Live, I like, mean, we of all people, I think people on JFrog know um what uh, I feel very deeply for for the um uh, for what you're on with this blog post, uh, because obviously we've been trying doing that for um, for 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 a decade for different languages, different dependency management uh, tools, mm -hmm. and uh, um, the one thing in common between all of them, they all suck. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, in some point of time, I, 
I have an abstract about how every possible dependency management in the world suck. For some reason, no conference selected this to uh, <laughs> actually talk. I still hope that one day some will, or maybe I'll just bully some organizer or another into accepting it, and then I will actually write it uh, because I have things to say. So I completely agree with the sentiment of your, um, uh, of your blog post, but let's, let's break it for the people who live in the fairyland of uh, <laughs> unicorns and ponies and think that it shouldn't be that hard to write a proper package management. You'd think, right? You would think, except, so tell me, what does a package manager do? So it's a tool that applies, that reads a description of what dependencies you need and downloads them from a known or sometimes unknown sources. So it's a declarative statement of what you need. I say, I need now a dependency X uh, because I want to write my code that depends on it. And then I run my build, it will download and I will be able to do it. How hard can it be? It's like a download manager in, this, in a way, that's all. I mean, you look like you're grinding your teeth. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. It's just, it's, it's like, I feel like what I'm hearing is, is uh, I feel like I'm hearing echoes from outside of the void in which I live uh, or something like that. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, uh, I, I asked the question because uh, I think that, I think that actually when you peel back a lot of the differences between package managers um, and the places where there have been disagreements, it actually does, um, a lot of it actually comes back to disagreement over what the requirements and the goals for the tool are. Um, and uh, I don't disagree with what, with what you're saying. Um, I think that is a piece of the picture. Uh, I think there's also uh, there's so many other things. Uh, but so one thing that you didn't talk about, for example, is like the publishing side. Is it also the tool that facilitates the publishing of it, it software into an ecosystem? We know some package managers that obviously facilitate publishing and others that don't. So for example, uh, Debian, Deb, uh, don't yeah. have any publishing functionality or Helm up until Helm 3 didn't have any publishing functionality. And uh, I mean, you can leave it aside as long as your publishing is just um, HTTP put and uh, the layout is either super simple like in Helm or kind of freestyle like in Deb. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's an obvious issue, right? Like you have to be getting some kind of thing and it has to have some kind of shape and either you're deciding that effectively by taking control of the publishing process or you have let somebody else decide what that looks like. And of course, if you let someone else decide what that looks like, then uh, you're in the risky position that the like meta risky position of, well, what if someone changes something about that and one of your assumptions breaks, which yeah. is like, you know, the same thing that we hate about dependencies in general. So it's both in the problem and the meta part of the problem. And that's one of the reasons why Helm, for example, now do have publishing because that's yeah. the, the only way you can change those assumptions is by encapsulating and encapsulating basically means you hide not only the resolution, but also the publishing away under some kind of a tool that then you can change based on your, uh, on what you decide. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you can control both ends of the conversation, it's an awful lot easier to coordinate 
Okay, so let's assume yes to publishing because as we just discovered, we want to encapsulate the publishing as well. Okay, yeah. still, I mean, one would, a naive person would think still very doable. What Indeed. is the big fuss about it? Well, is it also a dependency manager's job to provide you with information and perhaps make decisions about which versions of packages to use? and which versions might be a good idea to use or not to use? Uh, in my opinion, no, but I'm like super anal retentive and I don't like things making automated decisions for me about I versions. I didn't necessarily say automated, but it is a good point, yeah. It's key okay, point so that. you say it shouldn't decide which versions should I use, I just hard code them and then this is what the tool should do, right? Well, there's a, there's a lot of different, like there's a lot of different decision points here, right? Like there's, uh, uh, the easy way to think about, relatively easy way to think about package management is like, I've already made all my decisions. And essentially at this point, you're just thinking about the, like the, the reproducible build aspect of it. Here is my list of all of the things that I want. Make sure that you get exactly this set, otherwise fail, right? Um, but the question of uh, managing change over time, like whether it is adding or removing a dependency or changing a version of one of your existing dependencies, if you're like, you know, in a language and not so much a, System and language package management are pretty similar at that point, but um, yeah, so uh, there are, every time you're making a decision like that, where you are choosing to change the set of dependencies that you are uh, using, there's actually a ton of information that is at least plausibly relevant to the decision in some cases. Um, uh, I have a little taxonomy of it actually, um, but uh, uh, the question of how it should be, what you do with that information is sort of separate, I think. Um, Let me build a trap for Kat in two simple steps. Um, <laughs> so Kat, you That's said- rude. Yeah, so you said you don't want the dependency management to take decisions about versions. Instead, you want to explicitly specify which versions do you want, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then my question is, you know people and you understand that most of the people will um, actually hard code the version once and will never revisit this version ever again. And sure. obviously my question will be, what about security updates? Don't you Are want you your tool to be able to protect those ignorant people that will never update their dependencies with at least the mandatory security fixes? Are you advocating for pinning to latest? Because I've personally seen you rant about pinning to latest in public and why we shouldn't do that. Okay, okay. So as you see, hardcore <laughs> version might be problematic because you just ignore all the security updates, which is not a very good approach. So no, but neither is pinning the latest. Okay, so here you go. The another extreme is just always depending on the latest, which is obviously also not a very good idea, as Sam just explained. Right. Then you cannot build any kind of reproducible build ever. Yep. So uh, here we go. It starts to be interesting. How do we solve this problem, Sam? What is the? Oh, you don't. The... Let's <laughs> be clear. You don't solve this problem. There isn't an answer to that. There, there isn't an answer to that. I, I, I have been working on this for a while. I'm sure there isn't an answer to that. But the, the reason why there isn't an answer to that is, is interesting, right? Like, um, uh, first let's, let's uh, I don't have a super well-organized answer to this or anything, but let's think about security, right? So there's, there's a really interesting feature of, um, uh, of vulnerabilities in software, right? Which is that they exist, but we might not 
know about them. Um, and there's two senses that we might not know about them, right? Like it's possible that no human exists that knows about them. And then it's also possible that just you don't know about them, but other people do. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe that's like, you're just not paying any attention and everybody else knows about it. Or it's like some, you know, small group or NSA or something has a bunch of zero days sitting in a locker. And so you don't know about it, but they do. Um, uh, but either way, uh, you're operating in a rather uncertain environment when it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to vulnerabilities. Like sure. I have to make a decision if I'm going to use some mm -hmm. software. And as far as I know, nobody has come up with anything like some sort of general, truly general model for uh, saying anything other than indeed, like given our uncertainty about this decision, use the latest. Uh, this is the, the, uh, the conventional advice, but um, uh, which I'm not saying is wrong at all, uh, but um, it is at least interesting the way that that security issues highlights that what's really going on is there is something that's out there that we may or may not yet be aware of. And we're having to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Sure. And at the end of the day, um, I would, I've come to the conclusion that actually a lot of the reason um, more so than the algorithms that we use per se and, version selection algorithms that we use. A lot of the reason that we hate package managers is because they pretend to be certain about a fundamentally uncertain question. Um, let, me, let me ask you about that. And yeah. um, uh, so two questions, and just, yeah. I have a race condition of which to ask first because both of them <laughs> I wanna hear your opinion about. That the first question will be, um, I think stuff like semantic versioning is actually pretending to solve this problem because mm -hmm. We don't want to update uncontrollably because we don't want our build to break because of the uh, incompatible backwards compatibility, right? right. So we say, I, I will let it just update automatically and then everything will break because it now behaves differently. But semantic versioning actually promises us that major versions should be backwards compatible. And that means that if I allow auto update within the same major version, I will get the necessary security updates and I will be protected from, uh, you know, from breaking uh, changes, uh, backwards compatibility. So my build will still be reproducible. Here is a solution for you. And rainbows will shoot out of my butt. That that's will happen a, too a, in this. That's a safety blanket and I don't like it. <laughs> it it's not real. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. What's semantic versioning? I'm actually going to pick on two words in particular, right? Like you said both promise, semantic versioning promises, and then should. <laughs> these, two th these two things don't go together. Um, should is a weasel word. It is a weasel word. That is a, is a good way of putting it. Um, so now to be super clear, I actually think that one of the most unfairly maligned things in all of the world of package management is, is semantic versioning. Like there's any number of posts out there which, uh, which talk about um, uh, which just, you know, rant against semantic versioning, but you're shooting the messenger when you attack semantic versioning. This, this is the thing. Like, <laughs> um, so semantic versioning is a super reasonable attempt to provide a numerical encoding over the idea of compatibility. Um, the problem is the idea of compatibility. 
there are things you can criticize Semver for, like Semver 2.0 has things that I, I've written multiple different Semver libraries, and I am routinely annoyed by like how it's unspecified in the ordering of certain uh, like things in 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 the the um, the build component of a semantic version, like the spec doesn't say anything about ordering. The spec is also sort of ambiguous as to whether you're talking about uh, uh, like the spec could, for example, and this is me shooting from the hip, I haven't actually shot this through, could conceivably specify that like there is a proper way of doing ordering. Um, what almost everyone does is like when, when there isn't a compatibility relational ordering, you just like fall back to lexicographic ordering, which is terribly reasonable. Um, but it, it could be clear about things. However, the problem is not semantic versioning. The problem is compatibility. That's the problem. It's made up. It's, it's aspiration. Um, so the, <laughs> uh, this, this is a long and deep rant. I'm going to try to stay in the shallow end. It's actually not a rant. Um, uh, You're so, welcome to rant. Uh, well, um, this, is, this, is where, this is where I think things actually get super interesting, right? So when we talk about compatibility, when we in industry talk about compatibility and specifically like compatibility of, you know, some version, some package with some one of its dependency packages. Um, what we're actually talking about is correctness. Uh, that's what an academic would call it. Um, but okay. oh wait, I promised I was going to draw on the board and here it comes. Yes, um, do that. So when we say, I'm going to try to do this as simply as I can. Oh, cause this always goes weird. Jesus, I need to clean this thing. All right, uh, I don't. My kids have made off with my big black one. Wait, does this work? <laughs> All right, so let's say that you've got like, is that sort of visible? A is dependent upon B. All right, so when we say that A is compatible with B, what we are really saying is that, actually, sorry, I have to back up further. Here's a funny thing about correctness, all academic correctness research, all of it. In order to say that a program is correct, there has to be a specification. Yes. Okay. Programs are not yes. intrinsically totally. correct. Right, I mean like, which, you know, sort of obvious, um, yeah. but not something that people usually think about, especially because who the fuck has ever written a specification for like software that's out in the wild? Like Cosmos DB has, uh, has a TLA plus proof and there's some interesting, uh, uh, proof work, which is done to like low level networking stuff at Amazon, as I recall. And that's sure. most of the proof stuff that's actually out there in the world. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, WPA2, I think it was, had a had um, a proof of its correctness and security. And then when like the giant security hole came out three, four years ago. Yeah. yeah that was because one of the implementations of it, like while it had been checked, uh, there was some state issue that was like outside the scope of what was checked by the proofing mm. system so good job you know, like let's simplify. yeah let's not go there let's say if it compiles it's correct well <laughs> but that's still a spec that's the point the spec in that case is the type checker or the compiler and all of its things yep, checking to make sure that it's conform with the spec and this is this is real anyway so when we say that something is compatible when we say that a is compatible with b or whatever version what we're actually saying is that a in its own specification which is somewhere between completely and partially just in the head of the person that wrote A. Um, A is correct with respect to its specification when using this particular version of B. 
Okay. That's what we're saying. It is not actually about B at all, or at all about what B's author thinks that B should do. When we're talking about compatibility between the A and B, it's just about what like A's author thinks that B should do and whether or not A's guarantees are upheld, maintained, whatever, in the context of this version of B that we're looking at. Uh, so the reason that all this is monstrous garbage um, is because like even in the very best case, that like formal correctness proof case, right? Like even then, if you've gone to the level of writing a specification for your software, we still have plenty of documented cases of those proofs being insufficient to actually guarantee that like you are correct. So the idea that like even when you run it all the way out to you have your PhD and you've been doing formal verification work for 30 years and you still can't write a fucking proof that actually like ensures that some actually bundle of software does what you think it does, right. Of course we're not gonna be able to say anything with any precision about this like loose sense of compatibility that we're using that we've drilled down to three numbers and then some dashes and text after it. Yeah, like, are you surprised? You shouldn't be. But that doesn't mean it's useless at all, at all. It's still interesting and aspirational and you can actually get reasonably close. Like this is one of the things that, that Go does well, the, the notion of like the Go One compatibility guarantee, which uh, is conventionally carried over to anything that's, that's any, you know, libraries, whatever, written by anybody in Go. Like there are rules that you can follow, statically analyzable rules, which say you're not perfectly guaranteed that if you follow these rules, you're not going to break any of your dependers. That's not possible. Um, but like it, it gets us pretty close. And so to me, semantic versioning is the, uh, it, it is a way of numerically encoding a communal intent to try to uphold these, uh, these loose goals that we have. And because I don't think there's, there's much, because I know that like, there is no ceiling on this where we could just generally have correct software all the time. Uh, I'm not bothered by that at all. Like, it's perfectly fine to me to have an aspirational thing as long as we understand what, like what its limitations are and we, we have reasonable expectations of it. That makes so, sense. Just desperately know. trying to keep our heads above water and still occasionally inhaling water. We're yeah. doing what we can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and this is why like, you know, there's, there's an increasing number of like code intelligence type tools out there that the thing that I think, um, gets us somewhere really useful and interesting, right? Like, it's okay, you said you wanna control all of your versions individually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so is that like, do you spend much time working on things with like super large deep dependency trees, but like, you know, a hundred or so libraries that you've never touched? You don't know I don't about? because I don't have to, because I'm a developer right. advocate. So I get to build just cool demos yeah, no, we'll we'll talk about we'll we'll pretend, okay? So we'll pretend, and and uh, yeah. So this is like my next step in cut strap. So you said you want you want to pin down the versions, and then we say, okay, well, at least the major versions, right? Because we want to guarantee correctness, but also get the um, the latest security uh, security updates, which is fine. Sure. But then, what do you do with your transitive dependencies? There are two options for you to pick. 
Option number one, you flatten the tree. You actually bring all your dependencies to be your first level dependencies, and then you figure out all the versions. Option number two is you let your dependencies manage their dependencies as they wish to. Which one do you pick? I think at some point you have to extend some amount of trust um, because it's going to become an unmanageable clusterfuck otherwise. And you're going to require an entire team of people whose literal only job it is is to manage dependency of dependencies of dependencies 100 miles deep. Um, so at, at some point, I would have to just like suck it up and extend but some. But then you realize that your intent of having control of your dependencies just went out of the window. I could just cry. Well, that is, oh. that is a reasonable solution. And, and Welcome I think most, to most our world. <laughs> Welcome. Yes. I, I'll, I'll just not build enterprise software. That's going to work out super well for me. Uh, I thought, I it cool. One of the reasons you don't have to deal with this shit. You just run <laughs> so, about it without actually touching it at all. It's the, the, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a great question in there though, right? It's like, how do we, how do we draw some sort of dividing line? Like, you work in software for long enough, um, and by long enough at this point, it's got to be six months. I don't know. Like, you know, you'll, you'll hit. So dependency hell is, gets talked about as this. Um, uh, dependency hell, like, sort of formally is the situation, right, where you've got whatever, A and B, but it's like if there's also, you know, it's a, dependency hell is classically the diamond dependency situation where you've got also C over here, and they both depend on this, and then there's, like, if you're D, you're trying to, whatever, reconcile the version of B for both A and C. Like that's it's the- It's a clusterfuck. Well, it's a specific one. It's like, how do you arbitrate something and a shared resource between A and C that is the version of B? And if they can't agree on something, then you're fucked. Um, yeah. But I think that's actually, that's sort of the, like, the headliner case, um, which- Yeah, uh, the, diamond, the diamond dependency conflict is like what, everybody know why dependency management is hard. Right. I think the thing that most people actually spend most of their time in is something more like dependency limbo, uh, where you don't actually know if you're in dependency hell or not, uh, or if you're going to eventually reach dependency hell, or if you're going to find some way out. And in the meantime, you just smash square things into round holes until like, it seems like it's kind of okay. Um, because yes, the, the systems are deeply confusing. Many of the notations that are used, like, <laughs> um, it, I, I am embarrassed to say that I was like solidly into building a dependency manager before I even understood all the different variations and what a caret is supposed to mean, like caret 1.2.0 point, hmm. or something, because there's so many fun, fancy things that, that, uh, that people end up encoding onto it. Um, so uh, I think that most of the time people's experiences, yes, like I'm just confused by this. And crucially, like it's right there in the name, right? The dependency, I'm trying to do something. And this is a thing that I depend on, which I don't care about. I like, by definition, don't care about it. So all of my attention and effort is focused on the thing that I actually care about. And here's something which is coming in and getting in my way of doing what I actually want to do. Like, this is just, it's, it's never going to be a good day when you have to deal with something that comes out of one of these systems. So, um, yeah, I think there's the operant question here is you, you spend a little bit of time in software, you run into this. Uh, you, you come to this conclusion that, I don't know, maybe not having tons of dependencies would be great. And, you know, I clearly have more control um, when, I, when, I, when I don't do that. But also I like can't get my work done and I can't actually ship the things that I have to ship if I can't pull some things 
in. And how do you draw a line? Um, and uh, I mean, realistically, like, I, I don't think you do. Um, I think that uh, if you want to go and build perfect software, I, I don't know, like, I don't believe in perfect software. Yeah, well, it doesn't exist, right? I'm sure there's yeah. a virtual reality for that and, and fuck off. Um, yeah. but, uh, but like more usefully, if let's, let's just kind of assume that like all software will eventually gravitate towards having giant, giant tangled balls of dependencies. Um, if we assume the worst and we can kind of deal with the worst case effectively, then um, uh, it's not a reason to like, not be cautious about bringing them in. Um, but it's super good to know that you have like techniques for, for organizing it. And that's, that's my, my main take increasingly, uh, especially these past couple of years is that what we need are better tools, even language for um, even understanding like what problem we're facing when we're looking at dependencies. Um, so, but but here is the problem, and you you mentioned it, and I want yeah. to highlight it a little bit. So you said the the, the thing with dependencies that we don't care about them, and um, I would also add we add we care less and less about them uh, as they are more removed from the root. Right. We obviously care about first level dependencies to yep. some extent. This is why we pick them, we veto them, we consider should we even use them and decided that they bring value. We do care about the first level. Yeah. And the more we traverse on this tree of, of uh, transitive dependencies away from the root, we care about them or even know about them less and less. But the problems that occur due to bad dependency management anywhere in the tree, anywhere, are just as significant as if they were on a first level dependency or even in our code. Mm -hmm. um, a security vulnerability that bites a um, third uh, level removed dependency uh, in the S actually does the same harm directly to our application as if we coded this, um, I don't know, like a JavaScript in the, uh, uh, injection ourselves. You heard the, uh, the expression, a teaspoon of sewage? Yes, this is Yep. It. Yeah, it's right. Um, the, the risk is, well, you can sort of differentiate on a case-by-case -case basis in general, you can't actually say that like, you know, depth in the dependency tree is, is not going to be in any clear way correlated with uh, a significance of issue for your, for your software. Um, so uh, again, I'm, there's, there's, there's no answer there, but I will point to something that I think is interesting and powerful, um, which is you are highlighting uh, the fact that there is a knowledge differential, right? Like you, the author, um, whether it is you writing software, writing like, you know, a binary, an application of some kind, something, or you a library author, um, or you a hybrid as is allowed in many language ecosystems. Um, you, the person actually writing it, have differentially more knowledge about the uh, direct, about your direct dependencies, uh, certainly than anybody who depends on you. Uh, and if you're like, you know, the only person, the sole author of some, of some library, then you really are the one with the most knowledge in the world about those edges between your thing and somebody else's. Like, you know that edge better than anybody. Um, and if you start to look at, 
uh, going back to the very beginning, like what's the purpose of package management, right? Um, uh, if you start to look at package management as a information problem and a knowledge sharing problem, um, that's significant, right? Like how can, this is very like Douglas Engelbardy, I guess, or something, but um, how can we possibly take the knowledge that like we have in our minds as developers and make that most useful, most widely, as widely as possible, uh, so that the things that we have spent precious time figuring out, which have taken, you know, some amount of time for us, but would inevitably take more time for anybody else, like my D is up here, but you know, if I depend on B and there's some problem between my thing and B, and then like D is coming in and they're the ones having to debug that. If it took me an hour to figure out, it's gonna take them 10. Like the more that, that we can share the knowledge that we acquire as the people with differentially more knowledge about particular edges in this graph, the less pain and suffering that will be had more broadly by anybody else because they don't you know, have to run into these issues. But the problem is that obviously we have brain capacity for getting in information and complex information in particular. Right. And uh, what you say is, well, let's say all my dependency tree providers actually dump tons of information about everything I need to know about them. Obviously, when I'm getting to my third level removed from my root of the dependencies, I won't go through all of that. I won't intake through all of that, either because I'm lazy and I will, you know what, prefer the dependency just just mention that everything is great or yep. just because it's impossible to know? Yeah, so um, I think there is a kitchen sink approach to this which doesn't work well, right? Like there is just a, there's a giant pile of information which I give no fucks at all about when it comes to um, uh, most of my dependencies and I'm, never, I'm exactly. almost never going to. It's exactly. not gonna actually factor into any decision that I need to make um, and uh, I, I think that the focal point, right, is um, there's information which is sort of maybe broadly interesting or useful, and then there's information which you can actually turn into decisions, uh, which are directly relevant to the decisions that you're making. And if you push a little bit further, then um, uh, certainly if we can find a way to make that information useful enough that a computer could decide things about it, then we can make it useful for people. Uh, but you know, this, yeah, that was, um, that was exactly what I was uh, aiming at. And the, and my question was, okay, how can we in, encode all this information in algorithms that our dependency management that is getting smarter by the minute here actually can use and spare me knowing all this stuff that I am not interested or capable to actually understand. Yeah. So, um, there isn't a simple answer, because <laughs> there never is. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I said before, I have a taxonomy, which I've been loosely working on. Grab it right here. I think that, uh, so the decision that I mostly think about is the version selection decision. And that's not the same as, it's, that's the decision that you make anytime, literally actually really anytime that you, you do a core dependency management thing. The, like, the reproducible build decision is actually a version selection decision. It's just the one where there is exactly one right answer and the one right answer is the one that you had before. Um, mm -hmm. But there are other decisions like any time that you want to 
pull in a new dependency, change the version of one, um, or uh, uh, downgrade one, whatever. Um, and anytime that you engage in version selection, um, there are like a few different dimensions. And this is actually, this is a pretty fresh thing that I'm actually working out of taxonomy. So I'm curious what you think I've missed or if you think it's ridiculous, please throw shit at me. But um, so I call these selection signals. Oh, look, it's like so much that visible selection. selection yeah, it's signals. perfect. It's perfect. Perfect. Okay. And they come in like how many? One, two, three, four, five, six dimensions. Um, one is stability, which is something corresponding to, you know, um, alpha, beta, RC, things like that. Uh, that's how we encode that information. Another is compatibility, AKA correctness, as I just ranted. And there is um, vulnerability. As in there is some, you know, execution path inside of some code which uh, uh, can lead to some sort of security issue. There is provenance, which, you know, is getting talked about a lot today as a uh, software supply chain. Sure. Uh, and then license, as in you don't want to build something which has incompatible licenses in it. Is that six? That's five. That's five. Did I miss one? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five. But um, so I think these are the main, I think these are the main ones. Is there anything obvious that I'm missing here? No, it actually makes a lot of so. sense. We, we usually think about all of them, but maybe not as a list that you described here. So that's yeah. very yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, so there's different ways that all this information gets encoded. I think the, the first way that we think about um, the first like division to make within these, and it's not clear, it's not like one of these falls in one category or another necessarily. Um, but the first division to make is whether, uh, let's think of this in terms of signals, right? Like signals to a decision, whether it's a human making it or a machine making it. Mm -hmm. um, so the first division is, uh, is the signal something that can be extracted by a machine, you know, with either completely accurately or with some degree of false positive or negative. Yep. Uh, um, or is it something which basically a human has to write down? Okay. And um, these all vary, like in, you know, the category of vulnerabilities, for example, um, the, the existence of uh, all the different various forms of like security notices are the yeah. human uh, example to signal, but there's also plenty of uh, products and academic papers and everything about, you know, automated like vulnerability checking. Yeah, study code analysis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the same goes for, uh, well, for the most part, provenance is something that we do entirely automatically. License gets wonky. Um, I haven't actually kept up on, on automated license checking, but you know, what I remember seeing from a few years ago, at least is, uh, things sweeping over the contents of a repository and looking, uh, or of, a, of, a, of an artifact of a tree. It's, and, it's and, tons, tons of heuristics over there, but basically right. you guess 
uh, which are places can hint you about the license, like the presence yeah. of license text file or yeah. comments in the uh, uh, in the source files, yeah. and then you guess what is the license based by regex matching to the text. And yeah. I mean, it's all we try to do our best here, but it's kind of automatic with mistakes. Right. It, yeah, it right. is still like a little bit ugly. Yeah. So Providence, I think, is mostly. The thing, like Providence sort of is one of those that's also deceptively difficult because uh, like on the one hand, in the simple case, it's, it should be simple, right? Like here's an artifact, take a hash, store the hash and like ship that out with the thing. And if it's not that hash, then fucking throw it away. But like <laughs> theory, you, you, get, <laughs> you get into issues. Um, uh, you know, the, I think this is, I think simplifying the number of steps between, um, well, one of the ways that you make Providence easier is, is you just try to have fewer steps between like initial production and final artifact. Uh, what that really dictates is you wanna do as little as you can and ideally nothing um, between like, you know, original form of code um, that, you know, when did the git commit, whatever, uh, that was tagged and then, you know, got ready for release. And then like the actual artifact that's shipped out. Because sure. as soon as you change that at all, you need <clears throat> one more hash. And then in, like for every successive stage, you need another hash that you're going to carry I have, around. I have that's a wonderful anecdote about exactly that. Uh, that. That happened with, with actually with Go and our uh, attempt to support a uh, provenance in the, in the Go yeah. dependence management was, okay, you take Go module and you calculate a hash of it and mm -hmm. you should be able to rely on it. And then, well, it means two things. It means you cannot really change an archiving algorithm because it will change the hash. And which is a problem because you want to update your targz versions or whatever. Uh, because security vulnerabilities, for example. Mm -hmm. And more disturbingly, you will never be able to change the format of your dependency descriptor file. Yep. Yep. It's unreasonable. <laughs> Obviously, and, and especially for such a young tool as, uh, as Go modules, which is just mm -hmm. in the beginning of the road, there will be a lot of learning, stabilizing, and obviously the, the format will change. And that means that building the exact same source code in two different versions of Go will end up with two different checksums on the, on the modules. Wait, sorry, I missed that. How does, how does that happen? I haven't walked that case out. A Go mod is in the archive. Right. So if I change the, if I add the ability to, um, you know, to add comments, for example, and someone adds a comment on a Go module, I will end up with a different hash, although the sources didn't change. Oh yeah, right, because you include, yeah. Yeah, yeah as far as I know, that's, yeah, 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 it has to be that way because you need to require information. And too. then your solution actually makes sense. Instead of hashing the archive, which will take into consideration two optional steps, the descriptor and the, um, and the archiving algorithm just has the content of the repository. Now, if that changed, that means the source has changed and that's not the same artifact. But if all everything else like, you know, the, the, the archiving algorithm changed, then you don't care. Right, yeah. I mean, with, with models at least, there's a built-in thing where they have like explicit in the hash itself is information about which hashing algorithm they use so they can change it and know that it was the hashing algorithm that changed. There's ways to do that. Just looking at, um, oh, IPFS has a, has like a self-describing hash um, yeah. uh, object as no, well. That's which, for a hashing algorithm. I'm talking about the right. archiving. 
itself. Oh, how, the archiving algorithm, yeah. How okay. do you produce the targz? There is an algorithm that might change over time. You will get a different targz with the same content and it will produce a different hash. Yeah, actually that's why they, they went for zip at least initially because of the stability and simplicity of zip versus, uh, uh, versus targz files. But, but even um, then we're not protected against no, right. zip algorithm, right? Yeah, we're not. So I think the general thing here, and I actually think this is a super interesting and productive area. I was talking to um, some folks that get up about this recently too, like, uh, well, sort, sort of about this, like the provenance question is super interesting, right? And the simple case is the one where you just like, you, you just have an artifact and it, and it can't be modified. But the thing is like, we always need to modify it. Yeah. And what's hard is that, you know, I mean, hashes are super useful. It's incredibly useful that we can do this, but we also lose all information about what actually changed. And if there's something to be done with provenance uh, to, to make this more flexible in a useful way, I, I think it's going to be imposing some, some kind of semantics on like what class of change can be made and then how does this relate to um, uh, the different kinds of, uh, uh, what, kind, what are some classes of change you might make to a package? Um, how does this apply in each package ecosystem? And then how can we like encode a series of hashes or something like that, uh, such that we can you know, carry the full payload of information and have some general sense of like what actually is changing or what's supposed to be changing. And there's, there's a bunch of verification we could do here, but some, we need something that isn't such a harsh cliff right after like just the one hash that, that describes the thing. I've gotten pushback from all sectors about, about this. Sorry, go ahead. That's not an insignificant problem to solve no. though. Like that's a, that's a fucking mountain of, Difficulty, and uh, I'm, I'm drawing I guess I'm a mountain. I'm surprised that the the guy who thought, "Yeah, I'll build a package manager," is also <laughs> going onto onto this Providence Mountain here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think uh, when when Chris Short was on the other week, he mentioned that this is Providence is actually like my passion for whole other other things, other reasons, but. Um, uh, yeah, that's a that's another information problem. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm I think it is something which I don't think there are. I would be surprised if there is some like one weird trick that suddenly makes provenance a whole bunch better. Um, no, there can't be. There's and, I, I, and uh, you you remember we we were starting with the least problematic of them all, right? <laughs> no, with yeah. compatibility. Dear God, yeah. Well, that's that's the yeah. Um, but uh, so right, provenance is a mountain. Vulnerability is obviously a mountain because, oh God, oh God. Um, uh, stability is stability and license are probably the, the two least problematic. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually sure that I could say, I feel like talking about which of compatibility, vulnerability, and provenance are like more difficult is like talking about which infinity is bigger. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, what I can say that's really interesting right is uh, again like so when we look at all of these five different signal dimensions um all of them can provide reasons that you might not want to pick a particular package version sure. only compatibility can actually have like an exhaustive opinion about whether or not you should pick a package version um, 
that is uh, uh, because compatibility and correctness actually deal with like, like the simple way of putting this, right? Like vulnerability can tell me you shouldn't use this version, but it doesn't actually it's tell okay. me whether or not the, like the code works, right? Like I can, I can literally run code that's insecure in production, but I can't run something that doesn't compile. It, it doesn't work. Um, now that's stretching it a little bit because of course there's incompatibilities that will compile, but yeah, the point is, yeah. yeah, this is, this is like, to me, this is the, the, the er signal, whatever. This is the one that sort of underwrites all of them because it's the one that can form meaningful opinions about whether or not you should pair two versions together, um, uh, you know, two atoms together, one version of a package and one of its dependency versions, um, dependency package versions. Uh, you can like form an opinion about the entire matrix of all versions of the depender and all versions of the dependency, um, which doesn't make it more important crucially, it just makes it like the first thing you deal with because yeah. it's the most universal of the five different signals, signal types. It's the most acute problem. So, yeah, so basically yeah. we look at it and we understand that while we can try and automate some of those, of those decisions, mm, well, no. so here's, here's the, I learned a, a, a term recently. I didn't know they were called this confusion matrix. What's a confusion matrix? It's so great. <laughs> I mean, like, it's what I always thought of as a truth table. Um, but uh, so it's mostly used in like machine learning. If you Google for confusion matrix and pull up oh, okay. Wikipedia, it's, yeah, it's like, it's a, I love this, this, um, I love the, the image in there so much because it is like a rainbow of fuckery. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, like it starts with just the, you know, true, true, false, false, and like the two by two matrix. And then it just expands out the right and bottom side of the box and blows shit <laughs> everywhere. And like, it's all different random colors and why? And it, like, it, it's, it's a confusion matrix, but. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it is what it says on the box, man. I, it, it is accurate. Yes, it is. It is right there. What's on the tin? <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that has been um, problematic about all of these, kind of all, all, all the approaches, um, I said at the beginning, right? Like we've been treating a fundamentally uncertain question as one with, um, as one with certain answers. And like to all of the, to all of the, whoever's listening to this, um, to, to all the dependency manager authors who, who were like, no, I know it's uncertain. Of course, you know, it's uncertain. And so do I. And like, we've, we've known it's uncertain. I'm not talking about your understanding of the problem. I'm talking about like the way that tools actually present information to people. Uh, is that okay. the perception of, of the way that the tool like makes choices is that it's making kind of choices that are, that are clearer than they actually should be. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, so right now, um, in the family of package managers that use like SATful algorithms and, um, produce these, you know, big, rich, utterly confusing failure messages about like why it couldn't do a thing. Love those. Uh, it's, aren't they just great? Again, Beautiful. back to the, uh, back to the, the square peg and round holes. Um, uh, so I think that we're not using failure effectively. 
I think that's, that's kind of the big thing. I think we've been thinking about failure wrong. I can say for sure, because I was thinking about failure wrong. Like when I worked on DEP, um, uh, and when I wrote the algorithm for it, I considered, I considered exiting the algorithm prior, if there was like any solution that could be found, it was better to take that solution than uh, to, to stop, than to, you know, quit out, which is actually, it produces this interesting situation, which is that like the only time you actually get a failure is when it's kind of gonna be a monstrous error message because the thing already tried all the obvious shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's- What do you that's expect? Pretty much, that's kind yeah. of both intuitively and kind of formally true as well. Um, so, what's, but what's also interesting there is when you think about the confusion matrix of uh, most version selection algorithms today, they have both false positives and false negatives. Um, like, we may, it makes bad choices in both directions. Um, usually false positives happen because so in, in like a, in a, in a cargo depth bundler, hex, uh, NPM, most, most package managers world, you get false positives because, uh, they don't have enough information usually about like compatibility. Uh, and you can end up like exploring into weird corners of the graph and it finds a solution that it thinks is a solution, but actually there's something wrong with it. And you only figure that out after the fact that's like a possibility. You also get false negatives. Those tend to occur because somebody wrote, you know, like a super restrictive constraint and that wasn't a great idea. Um, uh, and you will there, never know about those at all, by the way. Uh, you quite, right. You quite plausibly will yeah. not. You have to like search actively and hard for them in order to find them because the solvers are working so hard to like find something else and give it to you instead. You have to like yeah. do a, a manual investigation path. What's interesting though, right, is that like, so both in those cases and in, in cases of things like Maven or modules, which use, um, uh, simpler algorithms, at least part of Maven does. Um, those also have false positives and false negatives. Um, actually, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, Go definitely, modules definitely has false negatives. There are unselectable combinations uh, without like having to hack the system. Um, I'm not sure if Maven does, um, but uh, they definitely have false positives. That's like their main cost, right? Like it can select known bad versions and just won't tell you about it, uh, but it does that in order to have a, a, a similar algorithm. Um, so I, I think the, the, like, the interesting direction, all of these systems have failures, right? Like, but everyone's been kind of trying to run away from the failures for so long that what if we could make failure informative? Like in life, you know, you fucking fail at something and then you learn something from, from it. it. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I mean, it is 2020. We should, we should have failure messages that are informative and useful. 2020. You know, Exactly. Well, but even even it is informative. It is informative for the person looking at the fail message. Right. I think what yes. what what Sam is yeah. saying is, you know what you, the 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 system itself, the package manager can learn something from this failure. Oh no, I'm but saying they both. never do. I'm saying both. Um, I'll I take think it. That, Great. Uh, Give yeah, me that. Uh, I think that the. I think, so what I described before, right, with, with how, when you have a solver that's really aggressive and sort of tries to explore all the corners before it'll actually poop out. Um, uh, the key with making, as I said, right, the failures there are gonna be, are gonna be 
complicated. If we are going to have more explicit failure, um, then pretty obviously what we need to do is not search so much. <laughs> if, if there's, there's no way to get there. Like some, some of the things that we chose that we thought were some of the paths that we thought were okay in the super hyper-aggressive uh, um, solving search, we're going to have to say those paths aren't okay if we want to error out earlier, if we want to have more digestible error messages. There's no other path. Like we have to search less and error earlier. The question is, how do you do that? Oh, yeah. um, so uh, I, I, have, I do have a thing. Um, uh, it's, we're like, I can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't super get into it now. Um, but uh, I think what's, what's interesting about it is, is you, you really, you, we lean into this idea of uncertainty, right? Once we get away, once we release the notion that we're like gonna try to make, um, we're gonna try to present to people, what's the best way to put it? I, I think that there's a good path forward here where uh, we think about safety thresholds risk thresholds that you're willing to tolerate. And we can make tools that um, work in the background, get out of your way, because once again, your fucks are all otherwise allocated and you don't want to be thinking about your dependencies. Sure. So um, uh, don't bother the user unless and until it would have to exceed some safety threshold. So you start really restrictive, like only make the safest possible decisions. Use, you know, if you're pulling in whatever, I don't have a thing, but if you're, if you're pulling in A and A depends on B, like only make the safest possible decision for B. And if you can't make that, like you can do that one, make the safest possible decision uh, implicitly. And I don't give a shit about it because it's my dependency and I don't care. But if some other thing, there's a diamond or something like that, whatever, some other thing arises or, you know, one of these other signals, that is when you get my attention. You get my attention when one of these other things has been violated. So if we can make something which keeps like keeps the walls really small uh, and does all the stuff implicitly inside of these walls, then you can actually like reason about what the effects of the tool are going to be at all times. And only when you have to expand the walls out to like search more of the space, only then but, does it start doing more magical stuff. But isn't it what? Um, all the package managers actually try to do and make the decisions for you unless it actually breaks so on, on, unless you have a diamond problem or anything else. Yes. They will, they will make the selections for you. Right. They will. And, and that's, but that's kind of the issue, right? Is that, so, and here we can get into here. I'll, I'll write another thing. <laughs> this is going to make some, some people very happy if they ever see it. <laughs> uh, Okay, so you know what this is? Tell me, tell me what is this? I'm I'm gonna do a shitty thing. Indulge me for a second. Tell me what this is. Just pick a thing that's vaguely true about it, because you're gonna be wrong no matter what you say. It's right. numbers. Numbers, yes. Well, that's actually true, but uh, <laughs> not what I was going for. It's this what? is a lie. This is a lie. That's what this is. It's a fucking okay. lie. Um, this is a lie, no matter what package it's about, no matter what dependency it's about, just no matter what. Okay. When you actually like write this down in a file, to write this down is a lie. To like express it ephemerally as a concept that exists at a single moment in time, that's maybe okay. But 
to write it down in a file that exists over time is a lie. Oh, I, okay. Now I, 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 yeah. got the, I got the coin drop. It's a version. Yeah, sorry. Right. This is like version 1.2.0 with a carrot. So it's a yes. compatibility constraint thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. So this is a lie for two basic reasons. One, um, depending on something, you know, and it's, it's anything from 1.2.0 to 2.0.0. Yeah, that's basically what it, yeah. what it means. That's the most safe semantic version right. version right, right, right. It this says that often, you can get you can get yeah. all the all the latest minor versions, but you are protected yeah. from backwards compatibility because of the yeah. character. Yes. Right. Yeah. Sorry, so I, how, I jumped ahead. <laughs> yeah. This is how the naive people will will <laughs> safely uh, express their dependencies, and this is like the recommended way. You do this. Right. You get the latest good stuff, and you're protected from backwards compatibility problems. Yeah. This is well, the Yes, and I don't I even think it's naive. Like, I think it's the best choice that we generally have at, in, in the systems that, for the most part, it's the best choice we have in the, in the systems that exist today. Um, but it's a lie, and that's the problem. Um, so it is a lie for two reasons. It is a lie because the moment when you write this in a file, it might be true. Let's stipulate that it's true. There are like, you know, four additional versions published that are covered by this range. And it's true. You are actually compatible with all four of those versions. However, you write it at a point in time. You publish it with your package, whatever. Um, and then some new version is released. Maybe, yeah. you know, they followed all the things or maybe you fell into, you know, the black hole abyss that is the impossibility of knowing any other human's mind and you depended on something that they didn't expect you to depend on and they changed it and it broke you. Fuck. Um, but either way, this has now become untrue. Also, if this thing that you're depending on chooses to, you know, they publish a new major version, right? So they put up version 2.0.0, that's excluded by this. Now, they might have been being good citizens and, uh, you know, they changed, they did a breaking change and so they rolled a, a 2.0 and uh, uh, cool, that's all, that's all great and well and fine, except that there's no guarantee whatsoever that the thing that they consider to be a breaking change is actually something that you were depending on. So <laughs> it can be a lie in both directions. So this is a lie. Um, so yes, you are correct that like what the package managers do right now uh, is when we expose this to people, when this is like the notation that we give to people, um, uh, we are asking them to lie. We're actually not giving people any choice except to make statements that might become untrue in the future. This is no individual user or person's fault. This is a failure of design. Um, because it is, <laughs> it doesn't age well, uh, and it has these edges that are not, it, 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 it has edges, it has ways that it can be wrong structurally. So we're just, we've created a system of declarations which are just asking solvers to have incorrect beliefs, um, you know, and you have to end up overriding things. Uh, so yes, it is true right now, solvers explore, um, they explore the space. The problem is that the space is laid up by these things that are inclined to be wrong. Um, so what we really need is uh, different information. And How to do that? I mean, this, different information. this seems to be the closest, as long as we assume that it will break in both directions, but mm -hmm. it's sometimes, but most of the times it will probably work. And when it breaks, we will have to deal with it. This is our reality. I mean, how, yeah. what else can you do? So, when you're debugging um, one of these things, I think there's a way that 
I think there's a process. It goes something like, um, so say that you know you're looking at you're looking at a diff, um, and you see that you have changed the version of one of your dependencies, and you've changed it like within um, uh, within a within a major range, not a patch range necessarily, but like you were using one two zero, and now you're using one three zero of some dependency, and there's some fuckery happening. So what you've established by actually doing that diff and seeing this delta, right? Uh, uh, I think that's useful information. I think that um, uh, I think that by having people write down what is these sort of by, by giving people the explicit control over these ranges in this way, especially in notation that again, like I got partway through writing a Semver library before even realizing all the different ways that carrots got used, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the confusing notation combined with its inability to like be reliably correct over time, um, we are setting ourselves up for disaster. Uh, but what we do when we're actually working these things out in our heads uh, is we look at the diffs, we see what's changed, we see how much of a change there was. That helps to sort of set our expectations about how much the author of the dependency thinks that they changed things between these two different versions that we're looking at. So I think the productive path is one where we figure out ways to take the thing that we're already doing when we manually sort this shit out and turn it into information that a machine can work on. And specifically, I think when, this is what I was talking about before, right? How I said, I think what we wanna do is search the smallest possible safe area. We set these safe thresholds and then we can maybe expand it more, right? Like, I think it's perfectly possible to build a system where um, you don't actually have to explicitly write down like a carrot. You can write down something simpler, like I'm currently using version 1.2.0 of something. Okay. And from that, you can draw inferences that are the ones that we draw, which is like, well, you know what? It's, there's some set of versions like 1.2.1 and 1.2.2, which are the ones that are like most likely to be safe. They're actually not even as good as 1.2.0. 1.2.0 is like the best one, because that's the one that I'm using right because now. Because that's one that actually works. Right, yeah. right. Um, but if I have to change it, like the safest mm -hmm. ones are going to be one two one and one two two, yes. and then after that, like I'm going to look at one three zero, and then one four zero, and then you know maybe it'll be worth checking if I really super have to uh, uh, v two. Um, maybe there's also like a separate min somewhere. If this is like my current version, maybe min is written down somewhere, and there's some other risk formulation that goes into the space between the current version and the minimum version. Um, but the point is, these are different like risk spaces. And when you start, that's already how we think about them when we're having to do this shit by hand, if we can build a model for uh, uh, actually like telling a machine that those risk spaces exist, then we can have the machine search them for us and sort of stay, stay within certain bounds. So, so how will it work? <clears throat> so I do have 1.2.0 in yeah. my declaration. This is what I actually started with. This is what I uh, um, intentionally picked. I made this decision about this version because I think it's great. Mm -hmm. And now I build it for, and for uh, when I build it for a hundredth time, there is 1.2.1 out there in the remote repository that now my dependency manager need to make a decision whether it will take it and or not. Right. So will it be like, wait a second, I'll run an experiment here on the side or, or what will it be? So I, I, I think that's the, 
to the extent that I run this path down. Um, I think this actually really comes down to, um, again, like I said before, right? Like there's a decision. Every time we select versions, it's, it's a decision problem. Um, and there are some times when um, the only acceptable solution like is the, is the current inputs. And you know, probably that decision, that's the version of the decision problem that you're in when you're like in your build farm probably, well, at least maybe in your build form, but maybe not in your CI, maybe in your CI, you want to be a little bit more expansive. Um, uh, so I think what we're actually getting towards, what this discussion is actually gravitating towards is um, the idea that what we're actually talking about is how do we provide an interface that is simple and understandable to these different like thresholds um, that we might want to search and how do we delineate between those different times, the different decisions that we are making with our version selection and when we might want to apply different thresholds. And it's the union of those two things that I think uh, is the, the cool fun path forward. That would be an absolutely fascinating tool to, to, to look at when, uh, when someone will someone. actually implement it. <laughs> I don't envy whoever is going to try to undertake that, but I will uh, happily use the shit out of it because I'm all about reducing my labor and my risk. But uh, I think that's the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend uh, about this and he was, he was yelling things at me appropriate things. Like he wasn't, he wasn't just pissed. He, he had like good, good comments, but yelly comments. Um, and uh, so, you know, think about like, if you've ever reviewed a pull request um, yep. and there's uh, some changes to the lock file, you know, uh, that, that has got to be one of the first files that you just collapse. Cause it's just like, sure. Okay. Like, great, this thing changed some version numbers. I have no fucking idea yeah. what that means. I don't know exactly. what that version I number It's not that it's not interesting. It's just, I don't, I don't know what it means, and I'm not going to check. No, yeah, it's, it's, right. it's not useful. Yeah, um, it's, it's not useful at all. It really, really isn't. So uh, the way that I, it, it, was, it, was, in, it was in him yelling at me that, that, I, that I realized it's this thing, right? It's like, when you are in the thick of, when you're in the thick of actually like trying to bang a square peg in a round hole with your dependency manager, like, you know, you, you build up all of this context about your dependencies and it's, it's just this like sort of intensive effort and you go through it. Uh, uh, and the end result of it is a diff in your, in your lock file or equivalent. Um, yes. And Honestly, it's not even just your reviewer who doesn't know. By the time that you actually have committed it and pushed it up to a pull request, like by the you next day, anymore. you have fucking forgotten yeah, everything. Fucking for forgotten. sure. It's for gone. Sure. It's, and it is also, like, it's, it, I'm not even sure you understood in the beginning. In the first because place. Right. Yeah. It, it, was just, right. it was just trying to change numbers until it yep. works. Yep. Yeah, I no, mean, maybe you're going to like out me as a garbage engineer, but I don't really pay much attention to my lock files. Like, nope. I don't. I don't Really, no, there's really know what's in there or care. Like, honestly, it could just be numerology. Like there, there could be yeah. somebody doing fucking astrology with our lock file numbers and the version numbers. In them. Yeah. Um, yes. But this is, it's the analogy that I came to with this is it's one of those like 
it's a huge wave, right? This effort that like builds up as a wave on the ocean and it crashes on the shore when you finally make the commitment and it just recedes back into the ocean. Mm -hmm. The ocean yes. of your dependencies about which you have so little context and yes. it just kind of vanishes away. That knowledge vanishes. Okay. So All right. um, I think that the, I think that when we start talking about, um, I think one of the cool things about talking about like the relative risk involved, right? Like, uh, if we can put names on the idea that, well, this change, we saw in this change, it was from V120 to 122 uh, or to 200, like what's going on there? We, you know, jumped some some big zones right there. Um, yeah. That's actually like, it. it's not that, that's information which is accessible to us, uh, but it's not something which is super accessible. Like we can work it out ourselves, um, but the the return on investment from literally even just like, you know, doing the, scan of like, okay, it was V120 here and now it's V122. There isn't even enough ROI like on knowing that, that it's worth going in and looking at the lock file. I would need a written down most summary the, that just says- Most of the time, right? Sometimes most of the you time. discover something mind blowing, but most of but the time- But how do you know to look? How exactly. do you know to look in the first place? Right. Exactly. So uh, I think that the, I think that when we start looking at trying to like encode the risk relationships in, in deltas, in, in changes, um, and we start trying to talk about them, first we find like we already have ways of thinking about it. Sember has, has acclimated us to this for some time. We sort of know the things, like if you go back to 110, then you're downgrading and like, was there something new that was introduced? Maybe that's an issue. You, you know the basic way that you're supposed to reason about this. What we don't have is, uh, is that language for actually like talking about it in a succinct way. And if we okay. did, um, I think that instead of it just being this giant undifferentiated ocean that everything recedes back into, like uh, uh, the same tool, that, the same approach that we could use to um, help shape like the decisions we make as we are going through, like, do I want to make this update or not? And, and what's my risk threshold, whatever could end up being the, the same language that we use to look at it after the fact. What is the like the net risk inside of my entire set of dependencies? Um, uh, uh, yeah, so. And uh, okay, so uh, the problem with this risk assessment is that it's in the eye of the beholder, right? If I'm a producer ah. of the library, I can tell you, with you know i can i can um, numerate this risk from mm -hmm. my point of view you might have completely different uh, risk tolerance than me and when i'm yep. say when i say to you you know what you can take it it's pretty safe nine out of ten that everything will be fine but my nine is actually your five sure um that I, if we were going that direction, I think, yes, that would not work because people are going to have different risk tolerances. Your risk tolerance has to be a local question. It has to be, how do you want your tool to behave? Like, is it just fucking wild west time and you want it to pick whatever and just never, ever bother me? Or do I want to control each and every individual little thing? And don't tell me, I mean, but literally again, don't do anything without notifying. No, but in control, you don't know anything. So don't ever ask me if this is easy. I don't ever want this to, well, to, to choose. But, 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 I, but we did know something because that was yeah. the thing. We talked about it earlier, right? Like, as you said, I, as a maintainer of a library, have knowledge of my direct dependencies. And I pointed yeah. out, right, like that knowledge mm -hmm. is useful. And we can observe that there is some differential level of knowledge between people who have, like people who have control over actually what goes into a lock file or equivalent have some more knowledge than people who don't 
in general, on average, I feel pretty confident in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, than you know the, the rest of the general population. So if we can find ways of taking what those people are already doing and turning it into useful knowledge, that's good. Like if, you know, um, uh, one, one fun fact about software, uh, you actually like really can't run two versions of the same thing at the same time. Like yes. you can, if you're, you know, if your trees allow it and you can like isolate, you know, name spaces and not what's dependency. Not. Yep. Uh, yep. Right. But like, that's an implementation detail. <laughs> you, you don't run seven versions of the same thing inside of the same running. No, you can't, you can have two dependencies, two exact dependencies and two right. different versions in your tree in any given right. time. You can. Which is super interesting because it really means, and you know, this even goes back to the days before dependency managers, like the version you're using right now is just the version that was sitting on disk. Really, you can only use one version of a thing at a time. Yes. So um, that's a super interesting and useful signal because it is probably the, barring extenuating circumstances, it is probably, I can't think of a better signal in terms of like, this is the version that's most likely to work. And you can't have a dependency without like having a version of it. Otherwise you can't run and test your software. So if I'm gonna publish my thing and I necessarily like have a version of it that I've been using, if I include that information, AKA a lock file, when I publish it, if it's a library, that information is available to anybody who's depending on my library. I've shared that knowledge with the world. Um, okay, so what, what, what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm, if I'm missing yeah. something, is that when uh, my package manager makes decisions about upgrade, it can um, take into account that 20% of the dependency tree will change because of this update. Sure, it could, that could be one way of looking at it. I think actually one way we could make this work is uh, you could pretty organically like run a general update and it would actually end up ignoring all of the like riskier updates and just do all the less risky updates and then tell you which ones it didn't do because mm -hmm. they would require more risky moves uh, and where the conflicts were. And then you can like do a second pass and do the riskier ones and then do a third pass and do the really risky ones. But you sort of do things in this cascade where you gradually step into, yeah. Yeah, but and that's the big we, shift, right? From what the do we really to do know, all the things at once. Except yeah. of the fact that some somewhere down the line in my tree, um, dependencies changed. So I can definitely see how you know what update this library, and it's just a leaf. I mean, whatever they fucked up in this library, that's your only risk. Or update this library, and it will replace half of your dependencies under your nose, and you won't really know about it. This is okay. I get it. What else can I take in this risk assessment except of the fact that updates changed? Uh, sorry, uh, dependencies changed. So this is one of those cases where I think that we might actually just, um, there, we don't know a lot uh, and, that's, and that's certainly true, but actually we don't have to know everything. All we have to do is make some incremental progress over the, like, the sort of blind guessing that we do right now. It's not that our guesses have to be perfect. It's just that once we're able to make slightly better guesses and differentiate those from the slightly worse guesses, that's what lets us take what has previously been a drink the ocean problem and turn it into something that we can like subdivide and understand what we're doing as we do it. Um, so when we talk about something which is like way down in the tree, right? So if we're relying on A at 120 and A at 120 released in its lock file, it said it wanted B at one or like 
200, say, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can see that as long as, like this is the version of B that was released and we are also using, that's the version of B that we have chosen to use, right? So mm -hmm. we're like locked in at the probably least risky, at least from a compatibility perspective, maybe not from a vulnerability perspective. Yes. But um, from a compatibility perspective, it's the least risky uh, version of B that we could be using. And the fun thing is that if we ever change this version of B, like say that we wanna go and update it for whatever fucking reason. So we changed the version to 1.0. Um, we still have the knowledge of what version A was using mm -hmm. when it was released at 1.2.0, which means that we can actually see this delta. We can see yes. that we have gone from B2.0.0 to B2.1.0. Yes. So in a stateful way, without actually making any changes, we can interrogate the graph and we can talk about the risk inherent yes. in this edge right here. So not only you can say, look, it will change five transitive dependencies in the tree. You can also ch uh, say, look, three of those will change only the patch, which is fine, but other two will try to change a minor version. Are you sure you want to do it? Yep. Yes. Nice. And you can even potentially say like, you know, for, for our most conservative updates, well, for a bunch of them, right? Like if we're going to update A, then if it's the only thing depending on B, then maybe we should update B along with so that we maintain that like lowest risk sure. level. Um, and, but then, you know, if we get into, yes, yeah, so let's be a slightly more concrete here, right? Let's say that there's, we also have C over here and C at whatever, doesn't matter. Um, also depends on B, so we have a diamond. Um, so, the word I have been using for this relationship, by the way, uh, A120 is contemporaneous with B200. Okay. Mm -hmm. They exist at the same time. Um, so uh, uh, and contemporaneous, by definition, there is exactly one of them. And um, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's the least risky compatibility watch. So um, you can imagine running an update across both A and C. And in the like most restrictive mode where it only lets you use the contemporaneous version, right? It just won't work unless there happens to be some newer version of A and C that, that both, both use a new version of C. Yes. Right. But okay. that's kind of okay as long as the thing can spit this back at you and say, hey, I can't do that because if you want to get newer versions of A and C, then you need to relax your threshold to, and then it can tell you like what threshold you have to relax. So here's yeah. some options you have, something like that. So you can so, say never update A or C unless they have a same version of B again, or you can say update them as long as the new version of B will only be a patch, but don't update them if it will be a, a minor version. Although by semantic versioning, every, all three options should be okay. Yeah, I, well, I think there's, there's two aspects of it. There's directly controlling B's version, which is an option, um, or you can just release, uh, you can just open up more of the search space on B yeah. and just focus on these relations here, not yes. on the actual version of B. Uh, either yeah. way. And uh, you can say, okay, I, I'm ready to update A for hmm. patches, and I'm ready to update C for minor versions. Right. 
And yeah. if B, the new B will satisfy both of those, they will be updated. And if it won't, it won't. Right. For me, that's yep. acceptable. As long as like when, as long as the error messages are intelligent enough to tell right. me what the actual fucking problem is. Right. Then I'm happy no, with this that is, system. This is yeah. beautiful. It's actually, yeah. and, and it, it, it allows you to build numerous versions of your pipeline experimenting with different updates with different uh, risk thresholds yep. and see where it actually breaks or where you have a problem or where you yep. produce any of the uh, of the signals that you you, you didn't want to mm -hmm. yes it does so how can i have um, this <laughs> <laughs> working on it <laughs> this is beautiful it, it, it really is i mean it it obviously won't solve any anything everything and i and i wanted to go back to the beginning saying that okay even with the most beautiful technology people will will fuck will fuck this up they will and uh, in in many ways uh, introducing breaking changes and patches that will be yep. the, the obvious one obviously all of the things will go wrong yes yeah but this takes us one step closer to actually yep. understand right. when something went wrong right yep. i mean yeah but by, by now we we don't have this illusion that we can solve we can solve dependency management we can't no we can't it's it's all it all it ever will be is a problem that we can organize better is a problem that we can collaborate on better that we can share better information about there is no there's no perfection here so yes things that let us and you know to cat's point right like the, the error messages have to be intelligible, which means it has to be something that we can fit in our heads. There has to be a, a same language, which is again, why I think it's yeah. why, why I base a lot of my thinking around shit we're already doing. I know how to reason about like how risky a 120 to a 122 change is. And if we can put a name on like the risk of that change and then use that name, uh, build a, there's, there's 17 words in the vocabulary, spoiler. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, almost all of which are things that people already know about. Um, uh, but they're, they're, like if we have a, a little finite set of words that we know uh, that we can use to talk about what kind of changes occurred and what kind of risks we have, it's not that the actual like super hard problem of dependency hell, diamond dependency, this is irreconcilable, like that doesn't get better, but the constant gray haze that all of us, including those of us who actually write these systems, operate in, that can get cleared up. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, then you should just have fewer frustrated, pissed off people in your issue queue complaining about how <laughs> that's a bizarre message from a package manager. Yeah. Yeah, because like more, more information solves a lot of problems. But if you give people too much information and it's right. phrased badly, that is worse yep. than having not enough it's information. Way worse. Like, it's, it's way so worse. Confusing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think this, this, this option ahead. of, okay, I can run this build with those seven layers of uh, restaking and see how it behaves in different risk layers. And I can not only do it once when I want to update this is what we do today, right? So today we will mm -hmm. try an update and see if it's good enough or maybe we'll try another update and we'll just yep. guess. Instead, we can always run all those seven layers of risk aversion and see to which threshold we can take this level without actually starting breaking things and take this because the updates will give us the most 
benefits without uh, without the downside this is yep. this is beautiful this is beautiful. if you're gonna keep saying seven layers can we call this dependency bean dip <gasps> oh oh dependency bean dip that's fun <laughs> Let's talk about naming. That will take uh, us another hour and for in thirty minutes. I have a blog seven post being dip. that I want to write about naming. Did you know that there's only one hard problem in computer science? Only it's one. naming stuff. Is it naming, naming stuff? It is naming yeah. stuff because there aren't two problems: naming, caching, and off by one errors. Caching is a subproblem of naming. I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced. Okay. And we'll write sell, a blog post about on it one that. day. Yes, we we need we need a blog post of that. I'm looking forward. <laughs> yeah. I, could be I have so many blog posts to write. Oh, God. <laughs> well, it's now painful. now will be a, have a good time. Good thing you're fun employed. Yes, right? Yes, good thing I'm fun employed. I have to wake In up quarantine. before you ain't so got anywhere to be. Stuff done. No, I just, I, I, you know, I'm with my kids all day. My, I'm fun employed. My wife is working. So, like, she is in my office working here. And <laughs> I'm out watching the kids most of the day. But I'm getting up at 4 a.m. I've got this like super productive great period from 4 a.m. to uh, 6 a.m. before they get up. And so. while with the kids, you can uh, dictate the blog post and then send them the transcription and then just edit them. How about yeah. that? I really want you to read a blog post from my one and a half year old. I think he would do a spectacular job of it. They would just be... Happy to. Yeah. Happy to. <laughs> Happy to. Does he Absolutely. want to collaborate on something? I'll ask him. I think the response will be, Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. That's his favorite. It's just yes. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. That yes. sounds good. Sounds enthusiastic. <laughs> so I'll take it as talking about that. talking about collaboration. My dream is to do a joint talk about how horrible dependency management is with Sam one day. And it'd uh, be fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And I actually you're unemployed. You had nothing better to do. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> I I do think that um. I have another blog post that I'll probably never write, but like that dependencies are actually probably everything that's terrible about computers. Yes. Um, and it has to do with that basic, like, and this is in the broader sense of dependency, right? But they, it, it has more to do with uh, our attention. And again, like this is the thing my fucks are currently allocated to and dependencies yes, are exactly. like by definition, exactly. the thing that I don't want to be paying attention to. Um, the worst but, case is when you, don't pay attention to something that is critical for you and the dependencies is the perfect example of that yeah you yeah. intentionally you, you intentionally avert your attention from something that will guarantee to bite you in the ass yep yeah and it's but that's exactly why right like that that is exactly why i think a, a sort of signals oriented mindset is a is an appropriate one because we have too much to pay attention to that's not going to change and it is, there is nothing that makes me more tired, honestly, than like the, the hacker news douche bro who wants to say that this is all your fault because you had dependencies in the first place and you didn't like thoroughly audit your tree, no matter what no, happened. That's... Like, just go, go away. Just, just go away. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's Nobody not like, anyway. no, no, but like, but it's, but the problem is it in, in hindsight, like it seems like such an, an, an obvious thing. Yeah. Um, and like, you should have been doing that and you feel like an asshole because you didn't do all the tree auditing and you just get sort of more paranoid and more angry at everything. And it's, sure, it's not helpful. Saying. Like, right. Yeah. So, um, but so it's being realistic about like what our capabilities are as humans, as engineers requires accepting that we are going to focus on some things and not others. And exactly. that tells us like our responsibility is anybody who wants to work on anything in the space that is dealing with the other stuff is we have to 
we have to be very careful and very specific about how we construct information so that the right signals get through at the right time. It'll never be perfect, but like that's the sort of fundamental shape of the space. So we yeah. can reduce the risk and make it generally less unpleasant. Yeah. For people. <laughs> yep. Yes. They, uh, I think it's, I think it is, I'm increasingly thinking of it in this sort of attentional thing, right? Like only get my attention when it's really needed. Yes. But also get my attention when it's really needed. Yes, right. De definitely do. <laughs> not, right. not raising. Yeah, yeah. So get with this optimistic message that we are looking forward for your blog post and other fruits of your labor during this <laughs> fun employment time, <laughs> I would like to thank you tremendously about this wonderful interview. It was breathtaking and, and just amazing in every possible way. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you very much, Kat. Um, as usual, you'll find this podcast on uh, Jeffrey's YouTube, on Dev's Pekizi podcast app of your choice, um, in Dev.2 as a transcription, if you prefer read to uh, watching or listening. And uh, I will see you all in the next episodes of the Dev's Pekizi podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been great.